I hope two things are true this morning as we meet together. First, I hope that that is your heart's desire, that is your attitude, that's your disposition, that this world with all the things that it brings, you're ready to lay aside even now in your mind uh, and take hold of Christ as we come together to worship. And also, I think this raises the question, if you're saying, take the world and give me Jesus, that raises the question, where do we get Jesus? Where do we find Jesus? And the answer is, in his word. That's where we find Jesus. And so that's why we're here this morning, coming together to hear God's word preached and sung and prayed, uh, is because we really do believe that as a church. We believe that the only way we are to have life and meaning and, and anything, the only way we are to know God and his will for our lives is if we have Jesus. And the only way that we can have Jesus is if we have and know his precious word. So that's what we come to now in our service is the time where we come together and we look at the word of God and see what it has to say to us. So today we continue a study that we have been engaged in for quite some time on the Sermon on the Mount. And we've begun to answer a number of key questions about the nature of the Christian life. We've, as, as you go to the Sermon, one of the reasons I wanted to go to the Sermon on the Mount after we left Titus is because Titus is kind of one of those fundamental Christianity 101 type books. And I think it is that for this reason. Because in Titus, we get the relationship between grace and godliness, grace and good works. And so it helps to kind of tie together our understanding of, of what God has given us and then what God requires of us in light of what he has done for us and what he is doing for us. And so it was after that kind of very fundamental discussion that I thought it would be good for us to go to the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount is also a fundamental passage. For Christians, it's kind of, it really is kind of Jesus's uh, message in a nutshell of, of what he came to do and what his people are and what will happen as a result of all of that. So we've begun to answer a number of key questions about the nature of Christianity and the nature of the Christian life. Last week, we, we asked the question, who or what is the Christian in relationship to society or to the world? We have this idea over here on the wall of Christians being salt and light. And so that was kind of the answer to that question. Who are we most fundamentally is what we find in the Beatitudes. Who are we? What are our characteristics as citizens of Christ's kingdom, as members of his body, as, as Christians, as his disciples? That's what we looked at in chapter 5, verses 3 to 12 of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And then we came to this passage last week where we looked at how, how Christians, those who have the Beatitudes, those who are manifesting the character described in the Beatitudes, who are those people to the outside world? We as Christians, as we come up against the world, the world that will persecute us, as we learn in verse 12. And the answer to that question is that we are salt and light. So that was last week. This week, we come to an even more fundamental question, much more fundamental than who we are, much more fundamental than who we are in relation to the world. And the question that we come to today is this, who is Jesus in relation to what had gone before? Who is this Jesus figure in relationship to everything that had preceded Jesus? You know, Jesus did not come out of nowhere. He did not come in a vacuum. I think sometimes people think that, that this, uh, this whole Jesus thing, this whole Jesus movement or uh, religion or whatever is just kind of popped out of nowhere and, and that's how we see it. We, we come to the Christian faith very much isolating Jesus from his context as a Jew, a Jew who belonged to the Jewish nation, a Jew who very much participated in the worship of the Jewish God. Jesus was a Jew and he comes out of that context, fully God and fully man, the Jewish Messiah. And we see this from the very beginning. As we, as we look at Jesus's life, we see from the very beginning that he does not just come in a vacuum. He comes out of a very specific religious, political, societal context. We see that in Luke 2, to 24. It says this, and when the time came, this is, this is at Jesus's birth, 
when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, this is his parents, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So here is Jesus, uh, the, the Jewish Messiah, the, the God incarnate. God who took on flesh and his parents are going about collecting turtle doves and so forth to go to the temple in Jerusalem to present him in accordance with the law and to do the sacrifices that they were to do in accordance with the law. Even Jesus. Then we see Jesus again at 12 years old. This is what we read. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. In other words, it was very much a part of Jesus' childhood to be surrounded by the Jewish scriptures and to be surrounded by Jewish activity. He was going to the feasts. He was going to Jerusalem. He was participating in this very robust, vibrant, dynamic religious life of the Jewish people. And of course, uh, the kids looked at this story recently back in the kids space, but of course we know what happened. They go and Jesus is somehow lost, not really lost, but Jesus stays behind. They leave Jerusalem and they realize after they've been gone for a bit that, that Jesus is not with them. They're looking around, they can't find him. And so what do they do? They go back to Jerusalem and it takes three days for them to finally find Jesus, 12 years old. And after three days, they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So we see a Jesus who, when he is born, is very much, uh, his parents are very much participating in these sacrifices in the religious life of the Jewish people. And we see him at 12 years old, very much engaged with the teachers of the Jewish people, the Jewish scriptures and the traditions surrounding them. He's asking questions. He is talking with these scribes, Pharisees, these people who were supposed to know and understand God's scripture, God's law. So we see Jesus' Jewish identity from the very beginning. That's my point. That's the point I'm trying to make. And Paul makes this very clear in Galatians 4.4 when he says that Jesus was born under the law. We see that, remember, when Jesus goes back to, he's with his parents and he's growing up in Nazareth. We're told that he was subject to his parents. He honored his father and mother. As we looked at in Ephesians chapter 6, where children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Jesus did that. As a child, he was born under the law as a human being. This is also made very clear at the beginning of Matthew. Go to chapter 1 of Matthew. Just flip over a few pages from where we're going to be looking today. In Matthew chapter 5. Just go over a few pages to Matthew chapter 1. And once again, in case you're tempted to see Jesus in isolation from all of this, in case you're tempted to just uh, kind of see me and my relationship with Jesus and Jesus is dangling out there without any kind of uh, textual context or, or biblical theology surrounding him. We see at the very beginning of Matthew that you cannot avoid the fact that he is seen as a culmination of a very long story. Verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes through. And it tells you that Abraham had these descendants, and that goes all the way to David. And then David had all of these descendants, and that goes through the deportation to Babylon in verse 12, which is a key event in Jewish history. So we have Jewish figures, we have Jewish history. And then that goes all the way up to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then verse 17 wants to go and try to put all of this together to try to show you that it is all moving towards Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now let me tell you about the Christ. Right out of that context, now let me tell you about this Jesus. And the question 
that would have been posed to Jesus. This is the important thing to see. The question that would have been posed to Jesus as he began to gather followers. Remember, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness, he says, and then he begins his public ministry. John the Baptist is shortly thereafter arrested and put to death, and Jesus begins to do all of these things, specifically begins to gather disciples. He's gathering followers. He's healing people, and he's teaching people all sorts of things, which the Sermon on the Mount is, is kind of one of the, the, the most, the premier Uh, situations where Jesus sits down to teach his disciples. He's doing all of these things, teaching about God and righteousness, and the question that would have been posed if you would have been sitting in the crowds or if you'd have been walking around would have been this. Where do you fit in? Where do you fit in, Jesus? In all of this history, how how are we to receive your teaching in relation to everything that has preceded you? How do, you rela- how do you relate to our holy scriptures, Jesus? Where do you fit? How does your teaching about the righteous life fit in with everything we have read and been told about righteousness? And let me make a, a quick distinction here. We'll get to this at the end of this passage that we're coming to today. But when we, we have the life of the religious people at the time of Jesus, uh, the life of the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, they aren't just following the law. They are following a, a whole host of traditions that have arisen surrounding the law of God. And so you have all of these religious people. We'll get to them at the end of this passage we're coming to. And these religious people, they, they begin to sort of pervert and twist the law. They add to the law. They, they bring in all of these other traditions. And they minimize the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and so forth. And so it would have been asked to Jesus, where do you fit in in relation not only to the, to the written texts, but to all of the traditions that have arisen around those written texts from all of our other teachers, those fancy dressed guys who walk around in those long robes with those long beards, those guys who, t- who, who stand out in the street and pray, those guys who, those guys who administer the, the worship of God in Jerusalem. Where do you fit in, Jesus, with these guys and with these texts. Now that was a question they had then. I think a question that we have today is this. How do we bring together the Christ, the Old Testament law, and the Christian life? How do we bring these three things together? The Christ, the law, and our living out the Christian life. That's the question I think that we will be answering as we move through today and following weeks. So let's look at our passage. Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. And Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches Others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I was struck this week as I began to enter into this passage by uh, the opening words of uh, D.A. Carson's commentary on on this passage, where he says, Matthew 5, 17 to 20 are among the most difficult verses in all of the Bible. So when you read that, you say, great. This should be, uh, this should be fun. So it has been fun. Um, it, is, it is indeed a difficult passage. We will not cover it all today. Today we will look at verses 17 to 18. 
And next time, hopefully, we will finish with verses 19 and 20. But the title for the sermon today is The Christ, the Law, and the Christian Life. The Christ, the Law, and the Christian Life. And there are three things, before we pray here to ask the Lord's help, there are three things that we're going to consider as we walk through these two verses. First, the enduring texts. Secondly, the legal categories. And third, the fulfilling arrival. That is how we will spend our time this morning as we go through verses 17 and 18. So let's pray to the Lord. Just take a minute and get those cares off of our hearts, those things that we're thinking about undoubtedly right now. And let's just ask that the Lord will use his word to speak to each of us. Pray for the person next to you. Pray for yourself. And then I will, I'm going to pray now for all of us. Our good Father, we love to pray to you, God. We don't do it enough. We are all guilty of neglecting prayer, I'm sure, Father, and would you forgive us of that as a church and as individual Christians. Father, we come before you this morning just uh, like the publican who came and, and uh, would not even look up to heaven, and he beat his breast, he beat his chest, and he said, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, we just ask for your mercy. Uh, we thank you, God, that although we are sinners, we have been redeemed and we have been renewed, regenerated. We have been given new hearts, those of us who belong to your son. And we praise you, God, that with those new hearts, we live out your law from the heart. We delight in the law of the Lord, as Paul says in Romans seven twenty two. We fulfill what we find in Psalm 1, that we, we love your law, we delight in your law, we meditate on it day and night. Would you help us be more that kind of person, Father? Lord, even this morning, would you help us to meditate even as we preach and listen to preaching and, and go through your word, Father? Would it, would it have its impact, the impact that you tell us throughout Scripture that your word has? Intrinsically, it is efficacious. Intrinsically, it is sufficient. It needs nothing to validate it. It is inherently valid. And so, God, we just bow before you by submitting to your word, by sitting under your word and not over it. So, God, would you please speak to us this morning as we do this together as a body here, this local church. Would you engage our hearts and our minds, our affections? God, would in every way we be turned towards you and away from sin we pray that our attitude leaving here this morning would be, take the world, but give me Jesus. I want Christ, Christ alone. Help us, Lord, to have that attitude as we go through this sermon and as we leave here today. We love you, Father. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first of these that we'll look at is the enduring text. The enduring text. The Jews were very unique in the ancient world as being a particularly textual people, specifically as being a, a religion that was very textual in nature. The Jews were all about their texts. Jewish religion placed a very high value on these sacred texts. And in fact, you can go through the history of Israel and you can see this as you read through the Old Testament. You can see how texts factored so significantly in the life of the people. I mean, in Deuteronomy, you have Moses telling the people, look, curses and blessings are dependent on whether or not you keep these texts, whether or not you keep these laws. Keep them, abide by them. Then we see Joshua. Joshua is told as he goes into the promised land with the people of God after Moses has led them out of Egypt into the wilderness and Joshua takes them into Canaan. We see that Joshua is to meditate on the law day and night all of the time. And we also find that the kings of Israel are to do the same. They are to be textually minded, always in the text, not in just some general kind of idea or set of ideas, but they are to always be in the sacred text. As medieval theologians would say, the sacred page. They are to always be 
there. We saw this also later in the history of Israel with Josiah when those texts are discovered freshly and there's revival and renewal among the people of Israel. As the king brings out these texts and makes them known, the texts themselves create renewal. The texts themselves create revival as people begin to deal with the content of those texts, which is the revelation of God. And we saw this with Ezra. As the people have come back from, from exile in Babylon and Persia, and they've come back to the land, and God has brought them together, and we see that they fall into sin. They're not obeying God's law. And then we have in Nehemiah this image of Ezra getting up and reading the law to the people, and the people are repenting and turning away from the sins that had recently ensnared them. So from the very beginning, all the way to the post-exilic period, the period after the exile, all the way from Moses to that period, we see a textual people, people who care about documents, who care about those sacred texts, and whose life revolves around them. There's no greater illustration of this than Deuteronomy chapter 6. When we did our series on Ephesians 5 into chapter 6, we looked at how Parents are to, at the, at the, at the very base, so, so let, me just say, let me just put this little plea out there. The, at the very base, whatever it is that we are to do and not to do as parents, we know that most significantly and most fundamentally is this, that we are to always have the word of God on our hearts, that we are to speak of it. And, and we have this vivid language in Deuteronomy 6 of, of putting it on the doorposts of your house, putting it on your forehead. I mean, this language of it just being everywhere. Nothing illustrates the textual nature of this people more, I think, than Deuteronomy 6. So to the Jew, God had chosen a people. This is why they were so textual. God had chosen a people, set them apart, and made known to them his character and his will. It's as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, the Jews, and only the Jews... The Jews uniquely so. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This little, tiny, insignificant people descended from this random nomad, Abraham, were the people to whom God entrusted his oracles. Everything that they would need to know about him, who he is, the eternal God, the creator of heaven and earth, and what he requires of man, what his will is for man. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. <clears throat> this revelation of God was found in a set of sacred documents. You see Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. He, he sits down, and he goes into the synagogue. He's there worshiping with the people, and he opens up the scroll, and what does he read from? He reads from Isaiah. It's a messianic passage. That's what they did. They met together and read texts. They met together and studied texts. Jesus opens up that scroll. He reads a passage from Isaiah. He, sits, he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sits down. Incredible. But once again, illustrating the fact that these people's lives revolved around these sacred documents. The Hebrew Bible. What we as Christians call the Old Testament. So maybe you, up till this point, haven't really considered what the Old Testament is. It's just kind of a bunch of books, and it's the, in the back of the Bible. Well, it's in the front of the Bible. And it's the largest portion of the Bible, but really you just kind of go to the end and focus on what's there. But this is the Old Testament. The sacred documents that preceded Jesus. The sacred documents of the people of God as Jesus is delivering this very sermon. That is Scripture. To the people of God, the Old Testament. And it is the Old Testament scriptures taken as a whole that Jesus has in view in verses 17 and 18. In verses 17 and 18. In verse 17, he refers to what? The law or the prophets. Now, this idea of the law and the prophets, we know that we, we can break up the, the Old Testament in various ways. It was broken up in, in certain ways by the Hebrews. We break it up in other ways. 
But essentially, this idea of the law and the prophets is a way throughout the New Testament that the Old Testament is referred to. So the Old Testament, you know, all those scriptures that preceded us, the law and the prophets was a way that all of that was summed up. We know that because, for example, of what it says in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. In other words, up until John the Baptist began to preach and Jesus came on the scene, what was there? The law and the prophets, i.e. the Old Testament as we know of it today. And then in verse 18, he refers to the law, which can also be a way of describing all of Scripture. The law, technically, the Torah, is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Old Testament. That's the Pentateuch, the first five books. That is, technically speaking, that is the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And it was the center and the background of every other Old Testament book as you move forward throughout the history of the Jews. And so you had the law, it was foundational. And every prophet, every psalm, every piece of wisdom literature, whether it's Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, all of these, going back to the law. Everything sort of moving out of the law. We know this because as you find in Proverbs, what is the beginning of wisdom? What is the beginning of knowledge? The fear of the Lord. He uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who has revealed himself to the Jews at Sinai in law. The beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, the one who gave us his law. And so all of the Old Testament really is, is, is kind of a, a working out of the law. So we have these prophets, Jeremiah, Micah, Isaiah, Malachi, and so forth. And the role of the prophet was to call the people back to the law, always pointing them back. Remember the law. Remember what God had said. There are curses and there are blessings. Obey God's law. And they were interpreting it and they were pronouncing God's curse. More often than not, they were pronouncing God's curse and his judgment on those who had broken the law. And so we read in Hebrews 11 how the, how the prophets are persecuted. Remember we read just recently that all of those who are of Jesus will be persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And those who are persecuted in this way are in the same line as the prophets. Why were the prophets persecuted? Because they were constantly telling the people, you've broken God's law. There's judgment coming. There's curses coming. And if you read the history of Israel, so many of the kings were wicked. So many of the kings were godless. They led the people astray to worship false gods, to worship idols. And so as the prophets are declaring to the people and to the king to his face, you have sinned against the Lord, repent. Well, what does the king do? He kills them. He kills them. And others kill them as well. Those who are leading the people. So this was the role of the prophet. So what's my point here? It's this. Jesus is making a statement about his relationship to all scripture that preceded him. When he talks about the law and the prophets, when he talks about the law, he's talking about everything that's come before him. How does he relate to all of that? How does he relate to the Old Testament as we understand it? So, now that the king has come to usher in his kingdom, does he render all of those sacred texts null and void? Does he nullify all? All of that sacred literature that preceded him and that was, was very much at, at the forefront of people's minds as Jesus is preaching this sermon. And the answer from Jesus is an emphatic no. I did not come to do that. So verse 17, he says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish them. I have not come to abolish. Jesus did not come to tear down destroy, put an end to, invalidate, or nullify the Old Testament. He did not do that. Instead, he says, these documents, these texts, these enduring texts will endure or remain valid all the way to the end of the age, to the end of time. Heaven and earth 
until heaven and earth pass away. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he says, this is very interesting. He says that the continuation of these sacred texts, of these documents that we call the Old Testament, the continuation of them extends even to the the tiniest letter and to the tiniest stroke of the tiniest letter. That's what he's saying. He uses the word in Greek, an iota, which we have here transliterated. But iota is just a way of kind of capturing the Hebrew letter yod, which is like an apostrophe. And so what Jesus is saying here is, not only am I not abolishing this body of sacred texts, but I'm not coming even to abolish a tiny little letter. And then he goes forward and he says, and not a dot. Now in Hebrew, the letters look very similar, kind of like a P and an R. In English. So if you take a P and an R and the stroke that goes diagonal to create the R were to be taken out, you would have a P. Well, the same is true in most languages. And in Hebrew, it's very much the case. The letters look very similar. And sometimes it's just a little hook on a letter that differentiates it from another letter. And Jesus is saying this incredible. It's so incredible. He is saying that not only Did I not come to abolish this body of sacred texts, which will continue until heaven and earth pass away? But I did not come to abolish a single letter of these sacred texts, and even more, a single hook of a single letter of these sacred texts. That's what Jesus is saying in this verse. And he says, all of this, I think, to teach us a number of things as we kind of apply this to ourselves this morning. So what are the implications of all of this for us? As we, as we just kind of move forward, we can say, okay, that's what the Jews of Jesus' day would have been thinking. That's how they would have thought about, okay, okay, fine. We got that point. These texts endure. We're going to go on to talk much more about all of this. But how does this relate to us today? And I think there are two things that we have to say, at least two things that we have to say as we, as we move forward. There's a lot to say in this passage. And, and by the way, I should say this, this week is a little heavier in terms of setting up how we then are to think about living it out. And so next week, verses 18, next week, verses 19 and 20, you will see in the text that it begins to apply that much more. Therefore, whoever relaxes, and then verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness. So you see in those latter two verses, it's much more sort of boots on the ground, practical, But here we're just sort of setting all of this up. But even now, I think there are a couple implications that we have so far. First, whatever we say about Christ, he can never be set up in opposition to the Old Testament. Whatever. Whatever this passage is going to go on to say about Christ... Whatever any passage in all of the New Testament is going to have to say about Christ, whatever you might think about Christ, he can never, ever, 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 ever be set up in opposition to the Old Testament text. As we've seen, Jesus' assessment of those Old Testament scriptures is entirely positive. There's absolutely nothing negative that we find in his language, even the iota, and the dot. So what does this mean for us? Well, number one, there are no grounds for Christians dismissing the Old Testament. And you may think, oh, of course, I don't dismiss the Old Testament. But you would be surprised to see if you went out and talked with people about their understanding of Christianity, their understanding of how the Bible fits together and how the Christian life is to be lived out and who Jesus is, what he came to do. You'd be surprised to find how many people see the Old Testament as either entirely nullified or just irrelevant. And many of us, I think, probably functionally speaking, live that way. The Old Testament is pretty irrelevant. I can remember one time uh, on a seminary campus, about halfway through seminary, I was walking around with this little New Testament. And uh, I, uh, I was just sort of, you know, reading it just walking around. I think I was taking a break and I was just kind of walking around reading some of, the, some of the verses, I think, in Matthew. And I had it open. I was walking around and one of the professors came up and he said, um, where's the rest of it? <laughs> and it, it, stru- it, stuck, it stuck with me. 
Because what he was essentially saying is, you know, and, and other, other people have said this too, that it's kind of unfortunate that we've taken the New Testament and really like published it separately. Now, it's not really unfortunate. I mean, you know, we understand why that's been done and we want to make sure that the gospel is at the center of everything and that sometimes you can't fit an entire Bible. It's just more economical to put the New Testament there. The Psalms and Proverbs too. And, and you know, just kind of, it, it, it works a little, it, it's a little easier to, to handle. But I think it is true that it is slightly unfortunate that we can even think in those terms. That we can even begin to bifurcate, to separate out, to parse out these two things without seeing them as one united whole. So there is no grounds for Christians to dismiss the Old Testament or anything in it, including Leviticus. None of it can be dismissed. In some ways, you could say especially Leviticus, read in light of Hebrews. So no grounds for this, and there also is no grounds for Christians neglecting the Old Testament. So now I'm talking not just about dismissing it in terms of how we think about the Bible and how it fits together and how Jesus relates to it, but even more functionally, practically speaking, how you treat the Old Testament in your Bible reading. Are you kind of functionally, so maybe theologically and in the abstract and intellectually, you're not a New Testament Christian, you know, an exclusively New Testament Christian. But maybe functionally, in practice, you are. You find that really you just kind of hang out in the New Testament. If you're going to read the Bible, just read Philippians again. You know, Philippians is awesome. It's great. Read John again. Read Romans again. But also read Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Proverbs and Job and Genesis. Read these books, these wonderful books, because they are God's word and not an iota or a dot will pass away from them until heaven and earth pass away. Secondly, I want you to see this. This is beautiful. I want you to notice... Jesus' doctrine of Scripture. What is Jesus' view of the Bible? And here's the question. Should that not influence our view of the Bible? How does, how does Jesus view the Bible as, a, as an idea, as a whole? How does he view the texts, the actual pages, the texts themselves? He tells us in 10, John 10, 35, a little more explicitly, Scripture cannot be broken. To the smallest detail, Jesus believed in an unbreakable Bible. Do you believe in an unbreakable Bible? Entire denominations, entire churches, entire denominations, churches of, uh, that are established churches of nations have toppled over because they have, they have ceased or failed to believe in an unbreakable Bible. It's an essential, essential doctrine that the scriptures are indeed inerrant. The scriptures are indeed infallible. They are unbreakable. They will not fail. If Jesus believed this about the Bible... And that is despite all of the questions that, asso- that we associate with the transmission of those texts... Jesus wasn't totally unaware of the fact that scribes, when copying a text, put in one word rather than the other word. Jesus was not, he wasn't uh, aloof to that. He, he knew how that worked. He knew scribes copied the text. They were supposed to copy it well, but scribes make errors in copying. Yet, he is to say here that God's word is enduring in such a way that even to the letter or the smallest hook of a letter, we are to understand that it stands and it is unbreakable. It will not pass away. Is this your doctrine of scripture? Doctrinally? And let me say this. Is this your doctrine of scripture functionally? As I said before, what I mean here is, do you believe the scriptures are sufficient? If you're facing an issue in your life and you come up against something, you know, Will, Danny, and I, were talking, we were talking about that this week with the teenagers and sort of how we, do, how we think about youth ministry and how we deal with the issues going on in, in the lives of teenagers. When you face something in your life, is your go-to something other than the Bible? That means you don't believe the scriptures are sufficient. That means you don't believe that the scriptures are efficacious, that they can actually bring, they can bear down onto life. To believe that the scriptures are what Jesus said they were 
is to go out and always believe that we can lean back on those texts, that we find sufficient, sufficiency in those texts, that we find answers in those texts. All right, so that is the enduring text. That's kind of the main uh, point that I wanted to, to really drive home this morning. Uh, some of these others will, will come in as we move forward. But secondly, I want to look at the legal categories. Although Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures, he did come, as he says here, to fulfill them. So verse 17, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now we will discuss the idea of fulfillment in just a moment when we get here to the fulfilling arrival. But first we need to spend a little time wrapping our heads around the topic of the Old Testament law. How do we understand the Old Testament law? Well, for centuries, Christian theologians and interpreters, commentators, have identified three parts or categories of the law. Now, let me offer a little caveat here and just say this, maybe a little disclaimer. This, uh, these, are, these are brought to the text, okay? So we don't actually have these categories in the text. They are ways in which theologians and interpreters have tried to understand the text and categorize the text. And they're these. We have the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial law. So if we are to go back to the Old Testament law, we're to understand how it, it functioned in the life of the Jewish people, and we're to understand Jesus' fulfillment of that law, there is reason to believe, as we read through the New Testament, and as we read through the details of those laws in the Old Testament, that we can, in fact, divide them up into these three categories, the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law, or the laws associated with those various categories. And I think it's important for us to get a basic introduction to each of these before we go on to consider how Christ came as a fulfillment. So first, the moral law. What is the moral law? And I'll go through these pretty quickly. The moral law is essentially the Ten Commandments. It is the Ten Commandments and the outworking of these as they are universally applied to all human beings. So we find in the Ten Commandments the principles or rules that are universally applicable to all of human life. And so what you will find, uh, one of uh, a theologian that I really appreciate is John Frame. And he has a book called The Doctrine of the Christian Life. And it's part of his Lordship series. And it's a massive, massive thousand page book. And I had to read it in seminary for an ethics class. And one of the things that he does is he, he walks through and he explains Christian ethics by using the Ten Commandments. Because, and we'll talk more about that next week, but his point is to say that the moral law is binding. It's binding on all humanity. It's universally applicable, not just for the Jews at their time and their worship, but it is, it is universal. This is God's will for man, the Ten Commandments. Number two, we have the judicial law, and that consists of those laws that had to do with Israel as a nation set apart as distinct from its neighbors. And so, for example, when I mentioned Ezra, when you have Ezra and Nehemiah, in Nehemiah, Ezra has come and he is, he's reading the law to the people and he's praying, asking God to forgive the people. He's praying prayers of repentance. He's asking that God will forgive the people for intermarrying with their pagan neighbors. Here's an example kind of of the judicial law. The law played out in which God is, is taking the people of Israel as a nation, as a theocracy, a nation that's governed by these laws and sets them aside as distinct from the surrounding nations. The judicial law. What they were to eat and wear, etc. How they were to conduct life as a nation. And then finally, the ceremonial law. What was that? These are the laws that are associated with the worship of God in the tabernacle and the temple. And so we find these various elements of the sacrificial system. That's Leviticus. So you're reading through Leviticus and you're, you're, you're really thick into the ceremonial laws. You're really thick into the details of all of that. These various washings. You're wondering, what in the world are all these washings about? These washings, these various burnt offerings, the various kinds of animals. I just mentioned some turtle doves. All these various animals that are to be brought and to be sacrificed at this time of year. These feasts and these individuals are to do these various things. That, those are the ceremonial laws. Burnt offerings, incense, washings, etc. So with these basic ideas in view, we now come to the fulfillment of all of this. And that's my third point, the fulfilling arrival. As we finish this morning, 
we cannot help but see that this entire passage is about the one who fulfills. The reason I have referred to this point as the fulfilling arrival or the arrival that fulfills is because Jesus' emphasis in verse 17 is on his coming. It's on his arrival. So look at what the language says there. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them or to fill them up. Jesus is coming. You remember when we looked at Titus and we we came to that passage in chapter two where it said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is the appearing of the son of God, that he's come. God, the word has become incarnate. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh, we read later, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten, of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus, God in the flesh. He has come into the world. And Jesus' coming marks a new period in redemptive history. Remember that passage I read to you a moment ago, Luke 16? It said this, the law and the prophets were until John. And I stopped there because I was just trying to make a point about the law and the prophets. But let me finish that. The law and the prophets were until John. So up until John the Baptist, what did you need to focus on? What, what, was, what, was, what was it really about? Where were you to find it housed? The law and the prophets. Since then, since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God itself is the fulfillment of all that has gone before. Before John, there was the law and the prophets. But now there's the kingdom. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, Jesus will say. And the reason for this is because the king himself is the fulfillment. The kingdom is the fulfillment because the king himself is the fulfillment of everything that went before. So what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament? Well, that's a massive topic. That's a massive topic. Huge. Uh, Not what I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to be able to unpack all that. I'll just say that. But I want to scratch the surface Particularly, so how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? But particularly, how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament law? If we want to narrow that in a little bit and understand uh, specifically what's going on here. First, I think we have to go here. If we're going to try to answer this question in a a nutshell fashion, we have to first go here. Matthew's, throughout Matthew's gospel, he has an emphasis on Jesus as fulfilling prophecy. And so he talks about it is written, it is written, always going back to it is written. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy in two big ways. First, he's the fulfillment of all of the types. So throughout Israel, you had, you had Moses. Moses said that he was the prophet and one would come who would be a prophet like him. Moses was a type. Joshua is a type as he leads the people into rest, but they don't actually find rest. Jesus, Hebrews tells us, leads us into the real rest. We know that David is a type. He's the king, lowercase k. He's the Christ, lowercase c. But the Christ, the king, will come. And so we've got typology and we get that. Even Jesus, that Israel itself is a, is a type of Christ. Christ encapsulates Israel. As we see, out of Egypt I've called my son. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, referring to Jesus as a, as a reference in the original in Hosea to Israel. So there's typology, but there's also predictive prophecy. Bethlehem, one will come from you, a shepherd of my people. His goings forth will be from of old, from everlasting. He will be born in Bethlehem. He will be born of a virgin. All of these prophecies that we find in the Old Testament referring specifically to Jesus. So when we think about Jesus as fulfilling prophecy, we should think he fulfills all of the types And he fulfills all of the specific predictions about the one who would come. Secondly, I think we are to understand this very generally. So you can't really go in here and and, and kind of delineate precisely how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament. Precisely. Because it's multifaceted. It's very general. The answer is in every single way. 
That's the answer to the question. So we are to understand it generally. But I think in the context of this general understanding, we understand that Jesus does the law. He explicates the law. And he brings all the Old Testament to its completion. He's like the crown on top. Everything has reached its end. And now Jesus has come. He fulfilled the moral law, the judicial law, the ceremonial law. He fulfilled all of it. But thirdly, if we're going to get more specific, I like how Sinclair Ferguson captures it under four categories. He has a little book on the Sermon on the Mount. It's power-packed. Uh, I've really enjoyed reading, reading his comments along the way uh, in, in dialogue with other commentators. And he gives these, these four different ways in which Jesus fulfills the law. So I'm going to go through these very quickly. First, Jesus fulfills the law in his doctrine or teaching. In other words, the meaning and significance of all of God's commands are brought to light. And see, that was the primary problem with the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath. And the scribes and Pharisees just can't deal with that. Because they had created all of these little rules for what you were actually supposed to pick up and not pick up on the Sabbath. And if you picked up, there was even a discussion as to if someone had a, had, a, had a fake leg, whether or not they could walk on the Sabbath because they were carrying that portion of the, that, that, that fake leg. That's ridiculous. That's the sort of thing that these guys were fussed about. And they were fussed about Jesus trying to heal people on the Sabbath. Jesus came to explicate the truth of the law in, it, in all of its fullness, showing that justice and mercy, what has is, what is God required of us? Justice, mercy, and so forth. The weightier matters of the law, Jesus will say. And so he comes and he explicates all of that. Jesus fulfills the law in his deeds and lifestyle. He perfectly obeyed God from the heart with love and joy. One of the things we try to teach our children, which is hard, is you're not just obeying, you need to obey cheerfully, right? Uh, does it work? It, it, it really falls, you know, it falls on its face. But it's not just, okay, and you walk out of the room, you know, and maybe kick the door or something like that. It's cheerfully, obey from the heart, cheerfully, out of love. That's what we're trying to, to inculcate in our children. Jesus did not just obey the law in action, but he, he obeyed it with a pure heart. He always did so with love and always did so with joy. That was his life. Every second of his life, every thought in his mind, every affection of his heart, every step he took was always obedient to the will of God. That's inconceivable to us. But here's the, here's the great joy. One day we will be like that entirely. That's an incredible hope for the Christian. And then Jesus fulfills the law in his death. Do you know that when we read through the Old Testament and we see the people of God gathered around Mount Sinai and there's all that smoke and that thunder and, and God speaks to them out of the cloud on the mountain which is on fire. The mountain is on fire and God speaks to them out of that mountain and they're, they, they basically are like run for your life. They're, they're so afraid. They, don't want, they want Moses to just deal with that part and they want to kind of keep their distance we might think that that's a moment where God really displays his holiness. God really displays his, his holiness in the law. Or maybe it's a sacrificial system. The way in which nobody could go into the holiest place but the high priest once a year. And he had to do so very carefully in a very specific way. That communicating the holiness of God. Or maybe it's when there's the, the people of God are carrying the Ark of the Covenant and a man reaches out carelessly to, to, to keep the Ark from falling and God kills him. Or maybe it's when Aaron's sons are there offering the sacrifices in a way that's not pleasing to God and God wipes them out. Or God opens up the earth in the wilderness and swallows these, these rebellious Israelites with the earth. Maybe these are some of the ways that we understand, man, this God is serious about sin. None of those compares to the cross. At the cross, God proves to us that he cannot relate to sin. He does not invite sinners into his presence. He cannot. He is holy. He is just. He is infinitely glorious and all sinners will be separated from him forever. Except for those whose sins have been paid for by Jesus. And I want to say this. 
Have your sins been paid for by Jesus? Did Jesus take God's wrath for your sin on the cross? You've trusted in that your sins have been forgiven and now you have the hope of eternal life. God invites you into his presence and he says, call me Abba, call me Abba, Daddy. That's an incredible thing. But Jesus' death on the cross reveals the seriousness of sin. It is not a game. It is not a small thing. It's not a thing God, God just passes over. It's so serious that he sent his own son. He had to send his own son to die for it so that he could forgive us for it. And then we have the elements of the sacrificial system. Hebrews tells us Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And so we talk about Christ being the fulfillment of the law. We are to understand that everything that went on in the sacrificial system, this is why I mentioned Hebrews and Leviticus, so follow me on this, that everything that went on in ancient Israel with regard to the worship of God in the tabernacle in the wilderness or in the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus fulfills all of that with his own body as he as priest offers himself on the altar as a sacrifice for sinners. All of that has been fulfilled in the death of Jesus. Ferguson's fourth and final way that Jesus fulfills the law is in his disciples. And this is the topic which we will turn to next week. As we consider how this kind of fleshes itself out for us. If it's true that the law is not abolished, but if it's true that Jesus has fulfilled it, what does that mean for us? We've got two truths this morning that we're working with as we move into next week's passage. One, we have an enduring law. And two, we have a fulfilling Christ. And that raises two questions for us. Are Christians to keep the law? Are we to keep the law? It's the first question. The second question is, if we are to keep the law, if, so, if, if we are, if so, how and to what extent? And what does all that mean? The Christ, the law, and the Christian life. So that's what we're looking at this morning and next week. And as we finish today, I just want you to see the glory of Christ. I just want to leave you with that. The glory of Christ as fulfillment. Every story, every book fulfilled in Christ. Do you see that Christ? Is that Christ your personal Lord and Savior? And is that Christ your intimate friend? This Christ who fulfills it all, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess? The one who will rule over the entire universe forever? Is this Christ, this fulfilling Christ, your intimate friend? Is he the satisfaction of God's wrath on your account? 2 Corinthians 1.20, which we started with this morning, tells us, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Is this how large the Jesus of your own mind, as you think about Jesus, is he this large or is he quite small and contained? The glory of Christ as the perfect man, he kept the law. We don't. We don't trust God like we should. We don't refrain from sin, renounce evil like we should. We don't treat other people like we should. We don't control ourselves like we should. Christ did. And for those of us who haven't, there's forgiveness of sins and life eternal through the perfect man. And finally, the glory of Christ as perfect sacrifice. And I mean this. Just because you're here this morning doesn't mean you're a Christian. A person is a Christian because he or she has believed by God's grace and the movement of the Spirit of God on their heart that Christ became sin on the cross and that by believing in him, our sins are taken away. That is the gospel. That is why we're here. If that weren't true, we wouldn't even be here. There would be nothing to say. There'd be no reason to read this book. That is the truth. So if that truth is not your truth, if that has not become for you everything, Examine your heart and pray and seek God's mercy and come, continue to come. Listen to the word of God preach. Read the Bible. Talk with Christian friends and pray to God with mercy that he might give you the spirit. And in your persistence, as Jesus tells us, he will listen. Seek him. Seek him. Now, why he may be found. No one is promised another minute. 
No one is promised that we'll wake up tomorrow and live life. We have all these plans, as James says. We know what we're going to do tomorrow. We know how much money we're going to have saved by this point. We know the plans we have for our careers. And all of that could be gone in a moment. It's, it's meaningless. But Christ says, come now. Because now is the time of salvation. I speak now through my word. Repent and believe in this gospel if you haven't. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We thank you for its substance and we thank you for the fact that all of its substance is fulfilled in Christ, your son. God, we're grateful that we're here to be able to hear the gospel freshly again and to, to confront it in, in the areas of our lives where we do, not, we do not trust in the gospel. The moments in our lives when we hope in worldly things and not in you. God, forgive us, but thank you, Lord, that in our sinfulness, in our frailty, in our rebellion, even our hardness of heart, that you are a merciful, loving, gracious God, and that you have given Christ to take away our sins. We praise you for that this morning, God, but may we not presume on that. May we not just because of that live any way we would like, but may we, may we recognize that and be brought to such a state of gratitude, such a state of humility and love that we say no to sin, God. I, I give you my sin. I, I, I turn from it. I want Christ and Christ alone. God, would that be the attitude of every heart today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.